The Fantasy Animation Podcast is a completely independent production. It is made by experts in the field. Chris is a lecturer in liberal arts and visual cultures education at King's College London and author of The Computer Animated Film, available in all good bookshops. And I, Alex that is, am a senior lecturer in film and media studies at the University of Portsmouth and author of Encountering the Impossible, the fantastic in Hollywood fantasy cinema, available in even better bookshops. We do this podcast to provide audiences with an informative and hopefully entertaining guide through the ways in which you can not only enjoy fantasy and animation, but study it, examine it, explore it, and of course, make it and have a career in it. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. My name's Alex Sargent. And I'm Chris Holliday. Chris, we made a promise earlier in the year that we would get through some of these franchises eventually. We did, we did. But but we'll tick off another one on the list on the way today. So we're going to focus on Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, the fourth entry in the Harry Potter uh, franchise. Um, and we're going to try and talk about it in relation to, um, I guess, uh, an el- the elephant in the room or the context in, in, in the text that is becoming increasingly kind of important to talk about or, or almost unavoidable to talk about, which is the issue of... Of, of Rowling as a, as a public figure and obviously some of the controversy surrounding her relationship or indeed her lack of relationship with the trans community and trans uh, yep. activism. Um, so it's going to be an interesting one to talk through because I think we haven't... It's always... What I like about doing these franchises in a way is that... It, by finding a new way to talk about the films, we're almost kind of jumping, as, as well as jumping through the various entries in the franchise, we're jumping through the various critical lenses that you might look at this film through. So I'm kind of excited to see what we can get out of The Goblet of Fire by playing with some of these issues. How about you? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's it's a tricky one because, as you said, with these franchises, the risk is that you we sort of repeat some of the same language and some of the... Um, unless, of course, you're the Bond franchise in which there's always something fresh and exciting and brand new to, to, to say. But um, with with these ones, yeah, I mean, so I would I will say that the Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire is my favourite of the Harry Potters um, of the Harry Potter films um, for for lots and lots of, of reasons which we will kind of go on to. But yeah, it, it's I was going to make another James Bond analogy there. I think this is this is the franchise's thunderball. It's the fourth one. It's doing something different. It's doing something that's um, but I think it's expanding. One of the great things I think about this film is that it does a lot in terms of kind of world building and and moving the world out sort of horizontally, which I quite like. Um, and it's the one that I remember seeing and thinking, yeah, this is a really great this is a really great movie um, in terms of this kind of characterizations. the fact that the children are being, they're not just adult surrogates anymore, they're sort of being young adults and the whole Yule Ball sequence and the fact that it's set against the backdrop of a tournament like, I think there's lots going on it's, it's, it's kind of, and I, I believe it's one of the longest books I think, certainly it's there was a lot of effort to try and kind of narrow it down into one film so I think that process of narrowing it down has made it quite taut and quite kind of economical so I yes certainly my favorite I think of the of the Harry Potter so I'm really excited to, to kind of talk about it. plus there are dragons and there's some CGI stuff so there we go great uh, well you've got two Bond references already I'll mention the Wizard of Oz off the front now and then and then we can all just get on with our jobs can't we so yeah. yes but luckily we, ha- we, ha- we are joined by a very special guest to help 
work our way through a lot of these issues. Um, uh, and that person is uh, Taylor Driggers, um, who is the author of Queering Faith in Fantasy Literature, which was published by Bloomsbury in uh, 2022, which and was also a finalist for the 2023 Myopic Award in Myth and Fantasy Studies. Taylor's research examines how fantasy literature can reimagine the relationship between Christian theology, queer desire, and gendered embodiment, especially via the theologies of failure. Taylor is a member of the University of Glasgow Centre for the Fantasy, uh, Fantasy Centre for Fantasy and the Fantastic, um, as well as the HRC-funded research network Future Voices of Scottish Science Fiction and Fantasy, um, and holds a PhD in English Literature from the University of Glasgow. So, Taylor, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hello, thank you so much for having me. So, as, as listeners might have heard from that bio, um, you're very interested in the relationship between fantasy uh, and queer representation, indeed queer uh, modes of reading. Um, I think that's a useful way to start to think about some of the problems of, of problem of Rowling, shall we put it that way. Um, before we get into Chris's favourite Harry Potter franchise entry, um, uh, let's think about it a bit more generally to start us off. I'm sure listeners um, who are listening to this podcast probably know a decent enough about the background of, of what we're talking about here, but it, it might be worth setting the scene in terms of some of the problems or some of the um, issues around what it means to be a queer fan of fantasy or indeed a, a sort of trans ally of fantasy, particularly this franchise, when there's all this context surrounding Rowling as a as a figure of, of yeah, of, of a number of controversies. So do you want to just start us off there and then we can move on to the, the film itself? Sure. And, and I, th I think first off here, um, I, I kind of want to preface what I'm about to say um, by, by kind of giving a little bit of background on, on where I'm coming to this conversation from. So I, I think first of all, um, important to what I'm about to say is just to note that um, I'm somebody whose own enthusiasm for fantasy was deeply, deeply formed by Harry Potter. I think from the ages of about, um, I don't know, 10 years old uh, until probably my early 20s, um, I pretty much ate, slept and breathed Harry Potter. So th this is uh, in many ways a franchise that is sort of deep in my bones and, and is very, very formative um, for my own um, encounters with fantasy. It sort of um, was my springboard into um, other fantasy. Um, but I'm also coming to this conversation as somebody who is in close community with a lot of trans people um, who are directly impacted by um, the money and resources and energy that J.K. Rowling is continuing to funnel into um, transphobic hate movements, I think particularly here in Scotland, um, where, where I'm based. Um, so I, I think those two things in tension are kind of important um, to, to where I'm coming at this from. Um, and, and I think often when the question is asked, you know, how, how do we come to grips with um, enthusiasm for Harry Potter in the context of all the things that Rowling has been saying and, and doing um, in a very public sense in the past few years. Um, I think sometimes it's very implicitly a question about how to maintain um, the same level of enthusiasm um, that we once had for the text. Um, I think sometimes it can even take the form of asking permission to, to maintain that enthusiasm. Um, and, and instead, I, I want to take a slightly different approach to that. And what I kind of want to focus on is to um, talk about how we can maybe 
listen to and and be attentive to and and respond to the discomfort that we might feel um, in light of that, you know, and and the discomfort that that question arises out of, um, because I think that sometimes that discomfort um, it, it can be very tempting to kind of brush it aside. Um, but sometimes it can also be instructive and, and it, it can often be revealing of what we already feel is the responsible thing to do. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about um, in, in, in my research and, um, and, and a lot of just what, what I'm doing um, in, in my own academic work at the moment about um, endings and, and how we let go of particular worlds and how we come to grips with um, the end of things. And, and I, I think um, one of the responses that I think is, is important to consider is, is the possibility that we can um, let go of this world that has formed us, or, or at the very least, hold it a little bit more lightly. Um, and and I, I think that comes out of my own experience of um, having once had enthusiasm for this franchise, for, for these books, for these films, um, but, but finding it increasingly difficult to come back to those in light of um, Rowling's actions, but also the, the impact that those actions are having um, on, on people close to me. Yeah, I, w I would say that. So thank you, um, Tara. I think certainly within film studies, there's lots of instances where, and I think one of my one of my students in a group in group work one year did something about kind of the valuing how we value and what do we value when we when we know certain things about the kind of creatives behind these kinds of processes. And of course, yeah, film studies certainly over the last few, or film, I would say, cinema and film studies response to cinema um, over the last few years as a result of certain kinds of, you know, the multiple reckonings, Me Too, Harvey Weinstein, so forth. Um, there are instances where that that question of how how we can value the relationships that we have with art and the the tenuousness, or I think you said the, the way in which we hold, we need to let go of some of this stuff or at least hold it slightly more, with, with slightly less closed hands. Mm. Um, and films in the cinema history is wrought with these sorts of stories these kinds of figures both in front of and behind the camera can we ever watch these films you know i'm going to pull an example out of the air but you know woody allen mm -hmm. probably a good example can we ever think about woody allen in the, in in the same way or can we pre or can we dislocate the art from the artist and all these big kinds of questions i suppose i i'm based on what you said i was thinking about uh, maybe maybe I, I know the answer to this, so it's a stupid question, but does it help when we're dealing with the films rather than the novels? Because is there a sense in which her, Rowling's proximity to the films is slightly different? Does that make these kinds of processes, I don't want to say easier, but different maybe? Because mm -hmm. obviously she's firmly wedded. I, I think certainly when the films first came out, they were working on the books. And then am I right in saying that the films and the... I don't know whether... Were all the books released before the films they weren't were they she no. was writing the film yeah exactly so she becomes more intimately connected mm -hmm. with the film franchise and start so so i just wondered whether it what your view is on on sort of rounding's role within the films because they seem i i've tried quite hard to think about them as not jk rowling products because mm. and actually a lot of adaptation studies would think through this that films turns out films are quite different mm -hmm. than books and so we so actually alex has got his hand well, up just, yes just just uh, um, you know, add a footnote to the question, and then Taylor, please, I'd like to hear what your response is. But it's it's, it's also like it's easier whether it's whether it should be, but it certainly instinctively feels easier to take Rowling out of the story because of the kind of because it's not 
It's yeah. not literally the hand on the page kind of relationship, but at the same time, in terms of what you're talking about there, Taylor, in terms of just the material link of this mm-hmm. or the material yeah, effect yeah. of this, it is, of course, the film, the multimedia franchise of Harry Potter that give that that really stokes a lot gives of her the, the cash gives her the yeah, finances right. yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah right yeah and, and and i think what you had to say about that alex is is absolutely correct that the, there there are actually almost two separate questions that we're dealing with here that um, one of those questions is a question of interpretation and the other question is a question of of material ethics um, and 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 i i i think it is it is true and and pertinent to um, from, from an interpretive perspective, and obviously from an adaptation studies perspective, especially, to to treat these as separate texts, as as, as their own entities with their own um, kind of complex authorship, um, mm. and and I think a little bit later we can maybe talk about um, some of the quite significant changes I think that this particular film makes to the way that Rowling presents gender and particularly presents. Um, physical descriptions of characters relevant to gender um, within the novel Goblet of Fire. Um, there, there's very significant changes that the film makes that I think are, are worth um, taking into account. Um, at the same time, yeah, it's, it's as Alex said, um, one of the concerns here is a material concern in terms of you know who, who's getting the royalties for this. Um, I, I know this was something that was discussed a lot um, surrounding the release of Hogwarts Legacy, where um, the, the the game studio that developed the game um, took great pains to distance the game from Rowling um, as a kind of um, creative persona. Um, at the same time, we do still have to ask um, the extent to which she is materially benefiting in the form of royalties, even if she isn't is, is minimally creatively involved. So there, there's there's a lot of complex questions there to kind of um, hold in tension. So on, on one level, it, it's, yeah, not exactly easier, but, but definitely different when we think interpretively about these things. Um, but but when, when we kind of pivot towards the, the ethical questions surrounding them, um, that's where I think it still gets um, a lot more thorny. I think, mm. I think, to try and unpack some of these so it sounds like we've you know that so the conversation we've had so far has centered slightly on kind of the, the you know to kind of try and simplify it into a blunt question it's something like you know the ethics of should i continue to purchase harry potter mm. products um to which we've i think offered some answers there i guess the next ethical question which i suppose the rest of the podcast is devoted to is given that i've already purchased harry potter products <laughs> what do i do with them now mm. um uh and and if i put on my dvd i don't know why you anyone under the age of 30 would put on a dvd but uh if if you were to put on my dvd of, of goblet of fire like i did last night in preparation for this podcast what 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 responsibilities what things should I be considering or, or indeed is there anything I should be considering or they're just things that might be interesting to consider um, so maybe we should move on and, and think mm-hmm. about those things in relationship to, to, to Goblet of Fire so I guess to, to set the, the story if people don't already know but again I think they probably do we have the the, the whole thing uh, this time is that Harry's growing up a little bit and I think we can get into exactly what that means in terms of the way it's represented in, in the story in terms of he's becoming more aware of his sexuality he's becoming early adolescent uh, we have the structure of this Triwizard Tournament, where Harry is mysteriously chosen as one of the competitors in this big Triwizard um, Tri-School uh, 
competition with various different set pieces that's kind of structure the movie there are dragons as chris said uh, and there's also yep. sort of more extension to the world building right we have new wizarding schools we have new uh, characters um so lots of, and of course the story itself pivots in this uh film this book as well whereby we get the return uh spoiler alert uh the return of 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 voldemort as a kind of as, as a as a physical uh, antagonist and the kind of you know the, the cliche darker turn of these um of these story arcs as, as the thing gets on so that's the kind of plot why don't we s just sort of try and nimbly get through it shall we so we should we start with the beginning um where we get this kind of uh you know the the, the, the traditional hogwarts prologue uh it's world cup time uh and the quidditch um world cup is on um, how did we feel about revisiting this sequence in terms of all the stuff we just talked about? Because what we have here, of course, is um, Rowling's depiction, perhaps for the first time, of the kind of global, mm. or a hint towards a global uh, wizarding uh, world, including, you know... Well, I'll I'll jump in just because I think it goes maybe goes back to your point, um, Tony, that you were talking about, like kind of J.K. Rowling's deep discomfort with bodies. I think one of the things, if these if these are characters that are finding their own as you say, kind of Alex, they're finding their own kind of sexuality. One of my comments was Cho Chang discuss mm -hmm. because there's, and and this is my, I mean, it is my favourite film, but there's a real uncomfortableness, I guess, with the way in which national identity and cultural specificity are being painted in quite, quite generic and uh, I don't know what the word is, uh, orientalist. Let's just let's just call it orientalist. Quite kind of quite orientalist terms. So I think that's. I, and I don't know whether that's a function. Well, I don't know what it's a function of, but certainly I think the the there's a uh, this is really I think this is where the films start to embrace the yeah this 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 idea of kind of world building. But but an outcome of that is that you get identity like you don't get fleshed out. The world mm. is so centered on these three characters, on these three kids, that actually there isn't much space for other character development in lots and lots of ways. And so they end up being these kind of archetypes with these really. Discom um what's the word kind of uncomfortable mm. signifiers of different kinds of identity that are then and even at the at the Yule Ball you have those those sort of twins that just sort of just basically bodies that seem interchangeable and sort of don't really have the nuance that, that Harry Hermione and, and Ron have so I don't know it's one of those films where yeah I appreciate I mean I, as I said I really like it I like I think it's actually the darkest actually a lot of stuff is written about how the third film is dark and we've talked about this on the podcast previously I find this one incredibly mm -hmm. dark um, and more so than that so I, I like that element of it and I think the the the, the world building and, and the way that it uses all of its its different spaces and set pieces as well um, but there is this undercurrent of Rowling not really knowing how to write different kinds of characters and so defines them in very I don't know whether it's the same in the book but defines them in this very broad sort of and then we have the French team and then we have the mm -hmm. you know the Eastern Europeans and then we have Cho and it's like oh so we're just going to do that then and we're just going to that's really what France French French students are like okay fine we're going to so that's my <laughs> that's where the so I, I don't know. That's that's my initial sort of. I, yeah. I'm I'm glad you brought that up because that that was actually one of the thoughts that I had as well in kind of thinking about this film through the lens of gender and and particularly kind of where, um, as as you said, the kind of broader attempts to gesture towards internationalism in this film, yeah. kind of intersects with um, the treatment of gender in the film as well, and the fact that we have three characters actually who who are Asian women who. 
um, are essentially positioned by the film kind of as, as props um, for yeah. um, Ron and Harry in particular um, to kind of bounce off of. And, um, you know, none of them, and, and I, I feel for the actors playing them as well, because they aren't given much to do um, no. performance-wise. We, we don't really get much of a sense of um, interiority for them. Um, they, they really are sort of... Um, at best objects of desire. Um, and, and definitely, you know, you, you were talking about um, kind of not being sure how the extent to which that translates to, to the novels. I think one of the interesting things about the novel that has been sort of much discussed is um, Rowling's seeming insistence on um, writing out foreign accents phonetically, um, which we definitely see with characters like Fleur Delacour um, and, and Victor Crumb um, within the text. And, and yeah, it, it does contribute to this overall, um, you know, simultaneous attempts to flesh out the world, but maybe not as much of an attempt to flesh out the actual characters themselves. There, there is this sort of flattening of um, non-British um, wizarding cultures that, that are presented in the text. Yeah, and I think that that um, their use as props, I think, is particularly important because this is like their use in the film or their role in the film, their narrative role in the film is like the, the white racial frame sort of par excellence because they're, they're, they are as props. They're often, they're also seemingly less so with Cho Chang, but the twins are certainly positioned as like alternatives mm. like not 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 the girls that they really wanted to go with but the 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 sort of the the b team the backup and and contrast that to the way the film then frames hermione she enters into the hall into the yule ball and stuff like that so i, I agree that they are positioned in that that they are gestures as you said towards this kind of international that the world of harry potter extends beyond the group the core group of british actors that have basically constituted the first three films and actually there's a real sense in which this is part of this is what i mean about kind of fleshing out the world and building um kind of building the world in in quite interesting quite interesting ways um and yet at the same time the constituent parts of that world are often painted with these very yeah this very broad brush that are gestures to an international set of identities but actually seem to fall on the same old same old of of kind of well one of the things that i noticed and and this is kind of a bridge between that conversation about the kind of broadening of the world um and 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 gender but um one adaptational choice that i think is worth noting that is not present in the novel is um the the decision to kind of over determine um the the french and the eastern european wizarding schools in terms of gender which is actually something that the novel doesn't do at all um and in the novel both bobaton and and Durmstrang are um presented as 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 co-ed schools whereas here um when, when we see the entrance of of the different schools um the, the, the French wizarding students are so hyper-feminized and so um, just, just completely, uh, again, um, these objects of desire. And there, there, there's even one particular shot where we, we are seeing it. I, I think it's meant to be from, from Ron's perspective. And we just see the shot of all their butts as they're sort of sashaying down the great hall. Um, and, and, and so it, it's, you know, they're, they're hyper-feminized in this very cartoonish way. And then the students from Durmstrang similarly are sort of hyper-masculinized. And it's, it's 
it's an interesting choice in that obviously um as as we've been saying this is a very long novel that um the filmmakers um are, are trying to distill into a two and a half hour film and so it, it seems like one of the pieces of visual shorthand that they've landed on is to actually um attach gendered valences to the different wizarding schools that we're seeing. So that, that was something that particularly stood out to me um, on, on this rewatch, again, thinking about it through, through that lens. So, but what does that mean then, I guess, what does that mean in terms of, of thinking about the way that the, the way that the film, as you said, those gendered valences within this process of becoming, how the film, does that feed into the way that the films themselves treat Body. There are bodies that the films don't know mm. that they don't know what to do with. Um, I'm much, we're much more comfortable with a Victor Crumb um, or a Delacroix. Like we're much more comfortable with understanding. Like the, the the film constructs its world that the characters are more con- comfortable with with characters that they can recognise through these gendered valences. The, when you get the kind of queer bodies, you get bodies, and I'm, you know, of course, Voldemort, of course, but and even in the first film, you know, you have Voldemort mm-hmm. stuck to the back of, um, what's his face, that professor, Quirrell, the, yeah, Quirrell, yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the 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 franchise itself doesn't really know what to do with bodies that don't don't fit, and even even characters that we consider sort of who don't dip in and out of the, the films, who don't then disappear and we never see them again. So even characters like Neville, mm-hmm. um, and I would say the Dursleys as well fit into this. That the the films always almost feel like they're trying. They they feel like they need to be, or the only way to be on safer ground is to sort of cast these or create these roles that are very, as you said, that are filtered through these very clearly defined kind of gender markers. And and there is no time. There is a the, there is no time that the films have. And it's a classic Hollywood thing of like Hollywood and villainy and queerness and not really knowing what to do with with queer bodies, whether you're Peter Lorre or whether you're whatever. Uh, I don't know, Neil Patrick Harris in Gone Girl. And I'm so thrilled that he was not made the villain of the piece. But there are certain ways in which Hollywood doesn't really know what to do with these bodies, of course. And I felt like that with the Harry Potter films, that it uses this Triwizard Tournament to to establish quite clearly defined, this this is what's going to happen. This is just a very clearly constructed world that Harry has to move through. And yet there are moments where there are characters where the film's like, oh, I don't really know what to do with these characters. They must, they're either the villains or I'm going to expel them. And we need to use this film to shore up Harry's kind of masculinity in two ways. One, because there's a rivalry with Ron that we haven't really had before. Mm-hmm. And then there's also a kind of, you know, his his um, uh, his relationship with Cho Chang, the question of desire in relation to Armani. So the film's trying to do a lot for shoring up. It doesn't account for basically non-normative subject positions. Um, so I'm just I'm just trying to think through some of these things because it's more than just that the, this film is doing things with gender and doing things with the young children as they ascend to adulthood, that they're no longer children trying to work their way through an adult world, but looking after and protecting each other. They're not... There's, there's something else... They're on the cusp of something else, and I don't quite know how to kind of mm. reconcile that in the in the film. With yeah, Alex, you look I, pained. Yeah, I I I I'm I have I have one of these thoughts. I'm going to squeeze out that I probably am going to regret saying. Um, but um, we'll cut. We'll either well we'll cut it out or we'll make it the ten second <laughs> uh, snippet that you know adverts the the show. Yeah, I I I'm trying I'm trying. What I'm trying to do in this conversation is is um I'm I'm thinking about that dilemma I've posed of um. Uh, what do I do with the, with the DVD now I own it? Um, and it seems to me that there are two, two I would argue, fairly legitimate responses um, to that. Um, and I'm seeing if we can try and articulate both as we go here. The first 
is now that I now that I have this context surrounding the author of this text that I once held it as beloved, um, will that give me an invite to find things in it that um, uh, I hadn't found before that are worth scrutinising and and problematising? Um, I think that's a very legitimate response to it. I guess the other legitimate response to it is to say, in terms of empowering communities which mm. fandom can do right fandom can empower minority communities for a mode of self-expression through its kind of we uh it's you know it's 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 kind of communal um uh ability so is the other the other valid response i think is to go well well fuck rowling like mm. um not not as an excuse for the film but almost to kind of like perform a reading that deliberately kind of kind of takes the text away from her right mm. you know in, in in the same way you can take away the wizard of oz i said i'd get another reference in uh <laughs> you can you can take the wizard of oz away from all the um deeply problematic cis gendered white men who made it and turn it into an incredibly important queer text you know mm. it, it's kind of can, can you can you take the text away from these problematic authors and make it yours um, and so I'm just seeing if I can find ways to do that. And I think there's something interesting in this movie about... Well, there might be. <laughs> this is why I'm... I, there's something about the role of spectacle in this movie. Because, Chris, mm -hmm. you, said, you said that these films don't know what to do with these bodies. Actually, up until now, they do know what to do with them, which is, is to make them a source of the abject. That's, that's, yes, that's yes, what yes, they yes. do. Through the mode of spe spectacle that they present, they, they make them sources of the abject. And that doesn't stop here, but quite a lot of the first three movies are Harry, Ron, and Hermione staring at disgusting things, you know, in quotation marks. Yeah, yeah. This movie, because Harry's growing into the role of the kind of action hero with, with gendered um, terms used mm. deliberately... Part of the process of identification and post of the spectacle is that we're supposed to identify with Harry in all these spectacular set pieces, and the other characters fighting at the same time are this hypermasculine Victor Crumb, this ultra feminine Fleur de Coeur, and Cedric, who's sort of a sort of he's a nice Victor boy Crumb diet <laughs> Victor Crumb, right? You know, like like nice boy, but but certainly. Certainly, we're not. He's still seen as this kind of figure of idealization, right? It's it's mm -hmm. there are four. There, I guess I'm interested in the fact that there are four uh, locuses of, of of action in these set pieces. Hmm. Three of them are idealized to the point of which you can't really identify with them, and one of them is Harry. Um, and there's something interesting about that. That 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 actually, as much as we're talking about these kind of really encoded gender dynamics. Um, those figures are not the figures that we're identifying with, I guess, is the kind of blunt, mm. boring way of bringing mm. back to this. Having said all of that, I am aware that I've just said Harry is now this figure of kind of subversive <laughs> identity, which he quite clearly isn't. So, but, but I don't know, does anyone want to play with any of those garbled thoughts? Mm -hmm. um, the, the thing that you were saying about spectacle kind of made me think about how just by framing the narrative of this film through... Um, the Triwizard Tournament, the film is kind of inviting us to think about spectacle and, and is kind of foregrounding um, the concept of spectacle. And so if, if we're um, maybe aiming to do a, a 
reparative reading of the text. I think that might be where where, where we could we could start with that. That that it, it is kind of because the the spectacle is is being so foregrounded, you know, and, and we're seeing so many scenes where. Um, the action scenes are literally being watched by people in stands. Um, we actually do have an audience that is um, present within the film. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't quite know what to do with that, um, but I, I'm, I'm thinking about that now in terms of... <laughs> yeah, I can't. Are there are there any Quidditch? There aren't. Any, there isn't any Quidditch sequences in this. No, movie, it, it? it's it's so bizarre that we we have the introduction of the World Cup and yet um, that scene is completely excised. Right. Um, yeah, interesting because because that's how the first three films right is that is that is that the big spectacular moments of the films are these Quidditch sequences right, which are in the books, but they're kind of much more kind of narrativized in the books. They're just these kind of big set pieces in in the films right. Um, and so I guess what's interesting is that in the first three movies we get these kind of big, as you, as you say, Taylor, foregrounded moments of spectacle with literally audiences watching on, and then you get these kind of I don't know like the battle with the troll in the bathroom mm-hmm. or the journey into the chamber of secrets, which are which are big set pieces, but they're 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 for want of a better word private between Harry and the monsters he's fighting or or this kind of stuff here other than that final battle with Voldemort which is you know which has that quality and that becomes an important plot point right every other it's like the two things have been folded together everything mm-hmm. becomes a thing that is watched by other people and and becomes as you say this really um yeah self-conscious moment of display and uh, and and it's not just that actually it's the, the ball is like this as well right the ball is this other like mm. a spectacular display of bodies of gendered bodies and things like that so yeah i don't know chris spectacle who, 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 who should we th- <laughs> what should we throw at this to make it work um but I, I think it's to do with i think it's to do with the you know it's the fourth film in the franchise so the first two were quite similar uh, the third film is different, but sort of the same. Um, and I like the idea of kind of private spectacle that is very much rooted in the fact that these are three characters who are moving through a school that they don't quite understand. They're encountering all these things to get to something, and often it involves the guest star of that particular film. Right? We get it. I get. I get what's happening. The defense against the dark arts teacher is the poison chalice because <laughs> whoever comes in and plays that role will probably be involved in some way. So anyway, this film is like. So I like the idea that it opens out the spectacle to everybody. So everybody in the film can kind of see what the fuss is about that we've all enjoyed as spectators for Mm. the first three movies. So now we're all enjoying the spectacle of Harry Potter. It'd be interesting to know, I don't know when this... There's a sort of theme park equality, and I don't know when when the first sort of Harry Potter experiences began to open up or people were thinking about this as a spectacle for the public. But it'd be interesting to figure out if this is 2005 and the highest grossing film of 2005 as well, um, it, that, that it's, it's doing something with the spectacle of Harry Potter, generally mm. speaking. And then it's then staging that spectacle back to the characters 
and going this is now this is the this is the video game level with the dragon this is the video game you know with the egg and the, and this is the video game level here and this is the underwater thing with the gillyweed and this is the this is the bit in the video game where you touch the port key and get sent miles away and mm. so it's it's almost staging it's almost like a four films in it's the greatest hits of harry potter as we've had so far bringing in all of these and the other thing is that it doesn't really have as you were talking about it so i was thinking about the idea of the villain and actually, this film spends a long time not really having a villain mm-hmm. because of the fact the fact that it's set against the backdrop of a tournament. So, damn it, the villains are just they're just fighting with themselves. They're just trying to better themselves. These things they're kind of competing against each other, which is very very different. And it's only at the end of this film where the three characters kind of say, you know, everything will change. Voldemort's back, and that, then that sets the second half of the franchise off and running, where we're back to more familiar, formulaic territory. So the Triwizard Tournament seems to kind of flatten out the film. This is a moment of reflection in the franchise. We're reflecting. These were the, the the bits of the franchise that work really well together. Um, I still think it's the darkest one because I think when Cedric Diggory dies, I think that's one of the mm-hmm. most because his father, his father, my but like that is. Absolutely heartbreaking. So, but this is an interesting kind of pause for the franchise. But it seems to be reflecting back the spectacle of Harry Potter within the films, within the film itself. So now, as I said, the audience, sorry, the characters in the film can really enjoy what all this fuss was about. That scene that you were talking about of, of Cedric's death, and, and particularly oh. once uh, w- once they come back into the stadium um, after yeah. after the fight with Voldemort, I think. Um, yeah, for, first of all, it, it, it is one of the darkest scenes, I think, in the entire franchise, just because of the way that it's acted and, and the, the way that it's shot and directed. Where, um, But, but I, I think it's also um, instructive, in a way, for, for thinking about the way that spectacle is positioned in the film, because um, when they use the port key to get back to the stadium, there's this triumphant cheer that comes up, but before everyone realizes what has happened. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I, I find that so interesting in terms of thinking about ourselves as the audience um, kind of being mirrored within that scene, that, that, that this is something that we're, we're kind of cheering on and, and kind of um, enjoying. And yet the stakes of it are act- absolutely gut-wrenching um, for, for the characters um, involved. I, I also think it's interesting, you know, you, you, you mentioned them kind of vying with... Um, themselves and i think that ties into what's maybe one of the the biggest adaptational changes in this film which is that the the maze is completely different in the way that it's presented um in in the novel the maze has all of these different uh very real very magical obstacles there, there there's a, a sphinx um who, whose riddles harry has to answer at one point mm-hmm. um and and obviously on the one hand you know in in in, in, in the film um they uh, that none of that is present, and and instead, what they're told is that they have to that they're essentially facing themselves um, in in the maze. They're they're facing their own sort of um, competitiveness. It seems uh, that the maze seems to be working on them in some ineffable kind of way. And obviously, from a very pragmatic perspective, um, it's to do with, with with budget constraints. You know, obviously, it's a lot less expensive. <laughs> Um, to film somebody's internal conflict than, than it is to present a giant sphinx in the middle of the maze. Um, but then it, it, it's also really interesting in terms of, um, you know, first having this um, spectacular battle with a dragon and then um, this, this um, ha- having to rescue somebody you care about from, from, from the merman. Um, and then um, 
having the maze there is, is really interesting because it almost deconstructs that notion of um, navigating the school as being these spectacular battles that we're seeing. Um, instead, we're, we're seeing characters who, who are left with nothing but themselves um, and, and what that does to them um, in that context. I was just going to ask. Actually, I was going to ask Alex because you said Alex that, that about the, the film up to this point doesn't really know, what, or I said that it doesn't really know what to do with bodies, and you said it does, and it makes them a spectacle. So is this film different then? Because the first three it does things with a Pettigrew, or it does things with a Quirrell, or and this film feels feels different in that sense. Potentially, I think where my mind goes when you say that is actually this film seems a little bit more interesting in spectacularizing positive there's some more air quotes bodies <laughs> than yeah. then, then mm. negative um right right bodies and i and i think i'm thinking kind of heroic of, bodies maybe yeah well yeah that's mm. that's it yeah. exactly it it's right, interested right. in yeah. the issue of, of of a heroic body that's exactly yes. it and, and i think having posed this question about spectacle and thinking it through one of the ways in which i've approached spectacle is to think about kind of idealization right is that 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 and, and particularly spectacles mm -hmm. relationship to fantasy is this kind of idea of idealization um when one ide idealizes something through by spectacularizing it they're kind of doing two things at once they're 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 creating they're creating something that they cannot be there could be something politically subversive about that so the film is acknowledging that we the viewer through the lens of harry cannot be Victor Crumb, Fleur de Coeur, um, Cedric. We cannot be these people. Um, but then it also gives us a kind of um, structure by which we can want to be. Yeah. So uh, Harry cannot be Victor. He's not masculine enough. He's not strong enough. But he can want to be that strong. Um, and in a way, and we can want Harry to be that strong. And in a way, that's what the film determinizes right mm. is that by the end of it and and I'm, I'm just struck that the cedric bit is incredible and it's probably the most harrowing sequence in the entire franchise and i'm just struck quite obviously and 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 is by that phrase my boy is mm -hmm. that is it's 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 that he's returned the crowd are cheering they're expecting a champion they're expecting mm -hmm. and, and it's this kind of it's this you know completely uh castrated for you know to kind of use you know psychoanalytic terminology body this limp dead figure of virality that makes it all the more harrowing to harry and all the more harrowing to kind of to his father right it's this it's this this figure of idealization has idealization has now been dead and there's this implicit assumption that that this is what Harry needs to be. Harry needs to be the the hero, and by hero, the film by then has determined what he needs to he needs to do the stuff that he does in every movie. He needs to run harder, jump faster, um, you know, fight f f fight more, be braver. Because it's not really interested in Harry learning more spells. It's not really mm -hmm. interested in Harry using his cerebral qualities. That's very much determined as a, as a feminine. Um, or it's given to the feminine space in, in the role of Hermione. It, Harry's not going to defeat Voldemort 
by... It seemed like that would be quite a wise thing to do. I've always wondered why on earth that's never like, you know... Why doesn't Harry spend more time learning anything, given that he's about to battle the greatest wizard that's ever been? I don't... But maybe that's the academic in me. Um, do the reading! Um, but, um, um, but, but he's not interested in that. He's, he's just... He's, he's good at using his wits. He's used at thinking on his feet. He's... Um, so do you do you think the decision then to have? I mean, obviously, I'm assuming this is in the novel, as in I haven't read the novel, but um, given that it's Cedric, Cedric's the kind of body that the film franchise has told us that have been relatively kind of infallible, mm. because even even you know even the ghosts are white, really. Um, the majority of ghosts are white, I would just say, certainly in Hogwarts, um, and so this is the kind of body that we expect going back on what you said, that we expect to, to return to the fold as the hero. And you have this sort of, yeah, this limp, young, white boy who so very easily could have been Harry. Um, and I think you're right that the sort of choice to have my boy rather than my son is quite interesting. Mm. But Because these are also just boys. But yeah, it's just, it struck me that, 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 that it's an unusual moment in the franchise because... Because he's just he's just like a he's like a human boy. He's not he's not a a Pettigrew or he's not a, yeah he's not a Quirrell or he's not a he's he's not somebody who is kind of tainted and informed and created and constructed even at the level of the production of the film through effects. He's just like a boy, and that's what makes it and a white boy anyway. We've talked about the main plot. Maybe we could talk about women. We've already alluded to it, but the, the subplot which seems kind of so so rife. Or thinking through some of these issues in terms mm-hmm. of, of gendered identity in the movie, which is which is that at the same time all these big spectacular uh, feats are happening and 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 Voldemort is plotting the the kids are getting older and they're starting to date uh, and uh, there's this that kind of plays itself out throughout the film, but again the kind of big set piece around that is the, is this ball where they've all got to bring a date and it's you know it's prom it's um, whatever whatever <laughs> national construct one is uses to to throw into that you know it's that um, they're all going to get dressed in their robes and people are worrying about whether their robes are their hand-me-down robes are too much and all this sort of stuff um i'd like to obviously talk about the ball itself and particularly the you know hermione's positioning in that and, and the way gender plays out in that but is there anything anyone wants to say about the kind of build up to the ball, the way these characters are announced as, you know, um, of sexual beings, I guess, as much as, um, you know, anything else. Um, I, I think Ron is really interesting um, in, in the entire Yule Ball subplot. I, I think, first of all, for, for the ways in which he is completely helplessly infatuated with Flora Delacour. Um, which, which I think, you know, in, in, in the novel has the broader context of, of Fleur being descended from um, the Vila, which are these kind of um, monstrous feminine figures of, of seduction, um, which, which obviously plays into the, the very overt heterosexuality of, of Rowling's world building once again. In the novel, we get this scene where um, a lot of the male characters in the series encounter the Vila, and they're all just sort of um, helplessly entranced. And, and it, it is this very simplistic um, depiction of, of desire and um, positioning men as sort of um, absolute slaves to, to their, their lusts and, and their sexual desires. Um, so that's interesting because um, that context is, is excised from the film, but we still do get a little bit of that where um, Ron is sort of recounting um, 
his his asking Fleur to to, to the ball, and and Ginny at one point I think says actually he sort of screamed at her. It was really frightening. So so again, um, this idea of of desire, um, and and particularly I think teenage desire as something that um, is just sort of uncontrollable and and um, ineffable, and 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 almost has as much sway over over somebody as as literal magic does. Um, where you know in, in the novel the magic is literal. Here it's it's you know not necessarily positioned as literal, but still um, it, it doesn't lose any of that potency. Um, but I'm also thinking about Ron's dress robes in particular, and and his relationship to his hand-me-down dress robes, um, because obviously the 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 way that Ron's dress robes are played for comedy, um, a lot of the humor is rooted in the way that the robes seem to cross gender lines. Um, and, and, and at one point, I think he even says, I look like my great aunt Tessie. So he, he's, he's naming that, um, that instance of, you know, um, he, he's, he's embarrassed because he, he looks like a woman, um, you know, and, and, and he, he looks like an old woman at that. Um, I think the implication is. Um, so um, that, that's interesting kind of position of the context of, you know, this, um, again, I, I think we can say very heterosexual spectacle of the Yule Ball. And here Ron is the odd one out. He, he, he feels um, like the odd one out because um, he is not able to perform gender correctly um, in this context. Um, and it's interesting as well the, the way that inability to perform gender correctly is linked to his economic status. You know, the, these are hand-me-down robes that are sort of an, an outmoded fashion um, for for wizards' robes. Mm-hmm. The thing with the um, uh, so the, the the notes that I've got on the Yule Ball are kind of so the ball, both the ball and the tournament, based on what you're saying, kind of are there to sort of expose different kinds of relationships, sort of. Uh, professional i.e questions different kinds of questions of desire in the pursuit of, of a particular mission let's say or, or, or um, task within the tournament and then the ball brings out as you said like a different set a different side to, to harry particularly particularly wrong so um a lot of stuff on the ball is about okay this is a space of socializing but it's also set against the backdrop of a tournament where the same figures are it's like about partnering up different kinds of partnering and different kinds of coupling up and there's no need for the love spells that would be elsewhere in the franchise this is sort of love spells but played for for real basically um also as you were writing i wrote rather than a heterosexual spectacle i wrote down the ball as hetero spectacle so i don't really know what i mean by that but that <laughs> new, new like term coins um, new term um but it may it it made me think of the sort of the teen movies of the 2000s uh, given that this is 2005 and the sort of 90s and into the 2000s so a lot of the 90s teen movies were adaptations of classic literature you've got your your uh, uh, 10 things out about you and you've got your clueless and all that kind of stuff then in the 2000s you've got and i don't know if this is kind of true but it feels like a lot of i don't know I, there are more films that are about female anxiety so mm-hmm. like mean girls than they are then there are masculine anxiety and what I, I like about the, the ball this the, the, the scene in this in the, in this film is that there's a sort of there's, there's moments where it lapses into like a high school or like a teen comedy mm-hmm. but it's entirely 
it's the, the, the female characters are the maybe this isn't true but the female characters feel kind of removed from the chaos and it's all about this kind of masculine it's very I'm trying to I think super bad was like this year. like super bad it, it feels like it's about the masculine anxiety um, in a way that we've gone from mean girls and we've gone to we've gone away from the female rivalry of teen movies we're back more towards your road trips or your American pie so I was just trying to think about whether or not the teen movies of the 2000s are sort of this is the moment where they come into collision with fantasy and you've got this sort of like I don't know. It's like the British version of trying to do an awkward American teen movie. I don't know, but um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Just, it, I just that, that's what made me. Think. I mean, Chris. First off, this is why I love doing podcasts with you. Is that just when I think I know what you're going to say, you're going to bring in the context of '90s teen movies to help diagnose some of the issues in this film. Sure. But, but now you've done it. It's she's all that, isn't it? Yeah. The moment that the moment that, <laughs> yeah, that Hermione arrives and walks down. Literally, there's. It's the. It's. It's. There's. It's she. It's even staged exactly the same. It's she's all that. It's the moment where the the, the quote unquote nerd. T- I really am using my air quotes today. Takes off <laughs> the glasses and reveals the supermodel um, beneath. Yeah. Um, and and the one there is one slight difference. And I think just I remembering the two sequences. Um, it's been a while since I've watched she's all that. I must confess. Um, but um, uh, the two sequences is that I'm is that at least the the Harry Potter version gives a certain recognition to 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 her own discomfort her own mm-hmm. unease yes, at being true. the object of display but other than that it is she's all that and and I wonder if it's if it's worth at least touching on a very uncomfortable aspect of this which is that is that you know we're talking about Emma Watson as well as a star here and I'm I'm trying to I'm literally trying to google in the background how old she is um uh, when this movie comes out, but this is very much within the era, certainly in the UK, of you know the countdown to Charlotte Church's 16th birthday in oh, tabloid um, press. She's 15. Yeah. Um, She's 15. You know, and things like that. And, and I, there is something. Well, there's you know, I, 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 it, I, I, we wouldn't be able to do justice and 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 deal with enough sensitivity to really delve into it much. But there's something about um, the enunciation on screen of of Hermione as woman mm. playing into a kind of star discourse of Emma Watson's growing maturity mm-hmm. um, that is very uncomfortable. Um, I think it's probably all I'm going to be able to say about that and do it any justice. Yeah. Um, but but I think you're right to compare it to stuff like that because it, it, she, is a, she is an object of spectacle in that moment. Um, not yeah. unlike Fleur de Coeur and, 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 the, and the bum shot at the beginning... Um, for 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 Ron, and and it's interesting that Ron is the character that mediates all this because you're right, Taylor. He's a he's a he's always the character that does masculine masculinity. He doesn't ever get it right, mm-hmm. but he's also allowed to be far more lustful mm-hmm. than than say Harry by a comparison. Harry quietly pines for for Ginny for about six movies, um, <laughs> and then kind of kisses her twice. Um, Ron, you know, and you're and it's that it's it's Ron. He's falls in love with a with with a creature of magical um, things. Is it in the next book and film that he's literally given a love potion? Um, I, I, I think it's Half Blood Prince. Yeah, Half-Blood Prince, it, it, right, he's yeah, given fine, a love wait. potion. Um, so there's this kind of weird, like his 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 sexuality is is so lust is so lustful to border on supernatural. Um, mm-hmm. It has to kind of find ways to make it supernatural to make it okay to make um, it palatable to make it, almost to make it palatable yeah yeah yeah, yeah. very interesting yeah. but then we get this moment of Hermione where really we're, we're, we're taking on the figure of Ron there to look at the display of a 15 year old 
girl. Um, I, you know, to use yeah. want a better language. I, yeah. The only thing I'd add to that is so the Sun did similarly a um, and this was part of the kind of Leaves and Inquiry of the Sun and the Sunday Sport doing these countdowns. So it was Emma Watson. There was a countdown to her 16th birthday, which would have been. At the time she filmed that she's 14, the film comes out when she's 15. The only other thing I'd add is that Emma Watson was one of the first stars to be the subject of sort of digital deep fake pornography. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's really interesting that it happens to be her and whether or not you want to trace a through line between this sequence and 13 years later, 12 years later, 13 years later, where you have these deep fake. There are certain kinds of star bodies to which that digital kind of enhancement and. and um, mediation through the computer grading suite were being subject to I and mean, it was it was scar it still remains scarlett johansson and emma watson and daisy ridley and there's a kind of group of of young stars to which this technology has often been kind of connected to and i think last week um there was a new video a deep fake video of scarlett johansson and she's now basically taking legal action against an app to sort of say my likeness is my own and obviously these are bigger questions around the star as a data asset and, and who owns the star body but I'd not really thought about that first of all that link to she's all that and I know exactly the bit you mean now having I'd forgotten I'd seen that I mean let's not pretend we don't watch it all the time but I also <laughs> haven't seen it in a long time Alex um, but I know exactly the bit that you mean um, which doesn't come too too much after to this uh, and of course there are two different t kinds of teen movies there's of course the masculine anxiety and then the female sort of rivalry thing and this is clearly the, the, the former but that that it, the fact that it's Emma Emma Watson, what the film's doing as part of this, that taps into a broader treatment of her kind of becoming, is definitely problematic. But she's she's also somebody that's been subject to these kinds of digital technologies in ways that aren't kind of entirely palatable. Let's say. I, I think it's also interesting, uh, and, and again, thinking about this as as an adaptation, um, the, the different ways that that scene reads um, in, in the novel versus the film, um, and 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 part of this is just by virtue of the fact that it, that it is Emma Watson, um, but in in, in the novel. Um, we're given to understand that Hermione is completely unrecognizable in this moment. Uh, in, in the film, it's very clearly just Emma Watson with an updo. Um, so so it, it kind of loses a bit of that um, kind of shocking transformation moment. But then it, it does become differently positioned, as, as you've been saying, um, when we contextualize it in this kind of broader media narrative of um, mm. Emma Watson and this, this kind of prurient fascination with... Um, the, the, the development of, of, of um, or the, the, the maturing of, of um, underage female celebrities. I, I'll, I'll ask what else there is to talk about in the movie because yeah. where we should stop it running up. I want to just very quickly because I've remembered that there's a really great pod, not to plug another podcast, but there's a really what? good, the, 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 um, Katrina Longworth's um, You Must Remember This, the yes. History podcast, yeah. has just done a really great um, series about 1990s sex culture in the films and talking about the figure of the Lolita. And I think if anyone's interested in more information and context about this, I would invite them to go and listen great. to those episodes because um, they'll do it much in much more nuance than, than we've got time to hear. Shall we Absolutely. go past the Yule Ball? Where, where, what else is left on our notes list? Because we're starting to kind of run out of time now. So, uh, um, yeah, Taylor. I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, about Rita Skeeter, um, just kind of sure. linking it um, to, to these questions we were discussing at the beginning of ah. um, the podcast. Um, because, and, uh, again, I think this is a, a case where... Um, Interesting adaptational choices have been made, and I, I think in, in this case, it's a choice to actually um, 
soften some of what we might object to, um, especially retrospectively in, in, in the novel. Um, so Rita Skeeter, um, who is obviously the, the kind of tabloid journalist who is following around all of the, the Triwizard champions um, in, in both the novel and the film, when we meet her in the novel, she's described in an incredibly grotesque um, way. And I, and I think if, if there's any um, particular body that the text, that, 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 that this particular text has a particular kind of anxiety towards, in the novel, it's definitely Rita Skeeter. Um, and, and in particular, um, I, I'm, I'm not gonna repeat the description verbatim, but she, she is essentially described um, in, in, in a way that kind of highlights a, a disjuncture with regard to um, her, her gendered presentation. There's a lot of fixation on her hands being very large and, and having a strong grip um, in, in a way that kind of suggests um, masculinity in some way. And in particular, I, I think this passage reads um, as, as very, very fraught um, in, in light of Rowling's kind of broader um, stance on, on trans issues. Um, and um, it, it also very closely parallels a similar description that um, the, the transphobic um, feminist writer Germaine Greer um, writes. I, I think it's in her book, The Whole Woman, um, but in, in that book, um, Greer similarly um, describes a, a, a trans woman in, in ways that kind of highlight um, what she perceives as the kind of grotesque disjuncture between um, gendered attributes and, and gendered presentation. Um, and, and, and I think it's inc incredibly um, interesting, especially regarding the fact that in, in the novel, Rita Skeeter is revealed to be a shapeshifter. Um, and, and Hermione kind of undergoes this entire quest over the course of the novel to, to expose Rita Skeeter as um, an, an unregistered animagus. So, so not only is she a shapeshifter, she's somebody whose shapeshifting kind of um, eludes the, the gaze of, of the law and, and, and of official institutions. Um, and, and this plot of kind of unmasking or, or revealing, I think is something that is incredibly integral to um, transphobic narratives of identity. Um, this kind of mantra that a lot of um, transphobic campaigners will say that, oh, we can always tell. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's interesting then that the film um, kind of excises all of that stuff regarding Rita Skeeter. She, she's just sort of a, a tabloid journalist. Um, and she, she is, I, I think she, she's costumed and, and I think um, Miranda Richardson sort of plays her um, in a way that is sort of hyper-feminine in a way, but it, it's, it's different than the sort of grotesque femininity that we see depicted um, in the novel. Um, and, and I also, I, I think just as, as another addendum to that, I think it's incredibly um, interesting and, and it makes her a very confused figure um, that in the novel, she's simultaneously meant to be this kind of satire um, on tabloid journalism. Um, and then fast forward to 2023 and, and tabloid journalism has been one of the driving forces in kind of perpetuating um, a lot of transphobic discourse and transphobic narratives within um, the, the British press, especially. So, so that, that's all um, incredibly fraught. And, and, and one of the things that I think really stands out about the text in retrospect, but again, 
interesting that, that, that even in 2005, um, there, there seems to have been a very conscious choice made to, to move away from that characterization um, and, and to, yeah. to, to move away from that way that she's presented in the text. That's really interesting. I hadn't, I didn't realize that, that that was the kind of discrepancy between the, the book and the, the film. And actually, as you were talking, um, as you say, that split or that distance between gendered attributes and gendered presentation, the way that, um, or, or that sort of the way in which that's framed um, by people like, like Grit, it reminds me of, of when I've taught kind of trans studies and, and um, kind of the transgender tipping point, there's often this idea of kind of the trap of the visual mm. and exactly as you're saying, these discourses of authenticity, we, hashtag we can always tell, um, the relationship between kind of, well, the, 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 the relationship that trans bodies have to deceit, that they are, they are concealing, that they are concealing under the, per, under the, the, the kind of the guise of trying to assimilate how dare they um passing and fooling and all the all the language around trans trans identities and and and, and how the, the signs like quote unquote how we know how we're supposed to know we can always this sort of hiding in plain sight trap of the visual um that there's something quite interesting about the way that you've described rita skeeter's intro like the, the fact that there's this whole plot about her trying to be unmasked but it made me think of all the times in the harry potter franchises mm. um what's worse that what's worse than being an animagus well being an unregistered as we know you know there are so many people in this country that are supposed you know it's, it, even though it's impossible for humans to be illegal you cannot be illegal um there are illegal and un, you know there are illegal people living here and and so forth and and so it's just sort of this 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 rhetoric of of um yeah, this this rhetoric of of authenticity and and that and and also part of that is that visibility therefore breeds violence. So mm. it's we're in we're in the height, and a lot of writers around uh, within trans studies would say. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, Raina Gossett, Alec, uh, Eric Stan, and Joanna Burton in an in introduction to a book called Trapdoor: Transcultural Production and the Politics of Visibility say we are living in a time of trans visibility, yet we're also living in a time of anti-trans violence. Consequently, you come to this project with a deep sense of possibility that also exists in an interval of anxiety. And it seems like a lot of a lot of maybe this I don't know whether this is true of all like a lot of fantasy movies, but the idea of kind of unmasking and finding out your true yeah. That you're 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 pretending to be something else, and of course you get that with your Pettigrews, you get it with Barty Crouch, mm -hmm. you get it with the sort of yeah, even, being even, somebody. Even the character of Umbridge, I mean, it's diff different movie, different book, and and um, but but give on this subject, you know, there's again the same link between this kind of ultra femininity and masking a form of of deception, right? Um, Umbridge is eerily mm. evil, but and she masks her her. Um, her true intentions through her through this display of 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 over the top pink femininity. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Mm -hmm. And and I think it's important to link that back to the earlier conversation about the anxiety that these films have around bodies that that, that we are often seeing um, our kind of normatively bodied main characters kind of gawking at quite grotesque figures um, and 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 linking that to the idea. Um, and, and I think I think this is something that Jules Gill Peterson has talked about a lot in her work, um, that that often trans people are an object that is looked at, and and, and that it, that is one of the, the traps of visibility, even post tipping point. Mm -hmm. That 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 the, the the tipping point kind of didn't resolve that fundamental issue mm -hmm. um, 
of of still being the object that is looked at, whether from a, a, a bigoted perspective or from um, a, a nominally positive perspective of, of representation. Um, it's very, very rare that you see um, a, a trans subject as, as a producer of knowledge, um, as somebody who can um, make an account of themselves um, from their own perspective. And so I, I think that's really, really relevant to bring up um, again, kind of circling back to this notion of spectacle and, and the ways in which this film is in some ways very conscious of itself as spectacle, but in other ways um, is, is potentially um, less conscious of, of the kind of spectacularizing discourses that it's, that it's bound up with. I kind of uh, this is one of these ways we bring the conversation to an end, I guess. But like that kind of it, that's kind of the classic adage of of uh, fantastical texts, right? Is that um, is that quite often by displaying some elements of 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 phantasm, it shores up other aspects of its own fictionality as being mm. kind of um, feeling more normal or real. And there's I think there's a play with spectacle on that. The things that seem the most magical and imaginative in the movie are are shore up things that feel most normal and that's kind of one that the effects these texts have right is that whilst they display these magical worlds which readers want to jump into the characters they're being asked to jump in there with and 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 see their way through become really uh, embedded within you know structures of identity they become in, you know and become so easy to take for granted as equally fabulous um, and I mean that in the kind of you know true sense of the word rather than um, in the kind of uh, um, in the kind of pos uh, yeah into the kind of modern day usage um, truly fabulous creatures as much as any dragons or or monsters or anything like else that might be represented mm. so yeah that might be a good way of yeah. of, of, of rounding off um, the conversation okay yes absolutely so yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm. We touch the surface, but we, 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 we explore the ideas, and and um, people are free to to respond. I think, um, but a really productive conversation, I think. And, and Taylor, thanks so much for joining us for it. Thank you so um, much for having me. It's been it's been really um, fun and, and and illuminating, and I'm now having lots of new thoughts um, that, that are different <laughs> from the thoughts that I brought to this conversation, which is great. Great. Stick that in an iTunes review and uh, that would be perfect. <laughs> um, uh, no, um, you are shameless. Speaking of shamelessness, uh, Taylor, you have a book. Uh, <laughs> tell us all about it. Um, no, the book uh, The book is fabulous. I've read it. Uh, it's a wonderful, and, and that's. Uh, and once I read it, I thought I need to get Taylor on the, on, on the show. Um, it's, uh, yes, a Queering Faith in Fantasy Literature um, for... for Listeners who might be interested in it, can you give us the um, the synopsis? What's uh, what's it about? Yeah, so so the book is basically kind of the, the fruits of my attempts to kind of think through um, how we can maybe um, kind of synthesize a, a, a dialogue between um, the, the, this very strong strand of, of religious readings of fantasy in one sense and um, this kind of... Um, this, this this way of allying fantasy with um, the queer or, or the abject or, or the strange um, on, on on the other hand um, so so it's, it's all kind of about how fantasy can allow us to um, rewrite religious traditions um, I, I particularly focus on Christianity um, within the text because that is the, the sort of 
theological tradition that um, was very foundational to me um, and that I, in many ways, still inhabit. Um, but it, it's, it's about how we can sort of um, reimagine theology and reimagine religious traditions um, from specifically um, queer and um, otherwise gender marginalized um, positionalities. Um, so in the book, I um, talk about texts like um, The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula Le Guin, um, The Passion of New Eve by Angela Carter. I also touch on um, Le Guin's Earthsea series, speaking of wizard schools. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I also talk about um, Till We Have Faces, which is um, a novel by C.S. Lewis that is sort of a retelling of the Eros and Psyche myth. Um, and, and essentially, um, the, the question that I'm asking throughout the, the book is, um, can we inhabit these religious discourses in ways that um, might lead toward queer liberation? And, and what are some of the ways in which fantasy um, can do that? Be because fantasy is um, obsessed with the other and the strange um, and the, the non-normative, um, are, are there productive ways that we can inhabit that, that sort of unsettle the very staid um, understandings of religious orthodoxy that we might inhabit. Mm, yeah, it's a fascinating read. Um, I'm, I encourage I was going to say, it's, right, it's up, right up your street, Alex. I oh. know full well. The, the, so, the many key, so many key yeah, words. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's a really great book. So uh, people can find it uh, out there, available for purchase. Um, I do encourage you to do it. Or indeed, if you have purchasing powers in your institution, get it, get it on those reading lists. Um, Absolutely. Otherwise, yes, Taylor, thanks again so much for coming on uh, to talk about Goblet of Fire with us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and we will see you uh, next time. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Fananim Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. Anything we've discussed today that you want us to do a footnote about, you can email us at fananimresearch at gmail.com. Um, and the blog and the archive are out there via all the various podcast subscription services and at fantasy-animation.org. Yep. We'll see you next time. Bye.